Welcome to the Media Mavens Podcast, brought to you by the Evergreen Network. The Media Mavens Podcast is where you'll hear the latest and greatest trends, topics, and tribulations with industry leaders. And here is your host of the Media Mavens Podcast. She is the original Media Maven, Sarah Miller. Hi, this is Sarah Miller, host for Media Mavens Podcast here with my co-host, Marjorie DeHay. We have some great guests on today. We have Mick Mulroy, who is a former Deputy Assistant Secretary of Defense for the Middle East and former CIA paramilitary operations officer and retired Lieutenant General Ken Tovo of the U.S. Army. Guys, welcome to the podcast. Thanks. Happy to be here. Happy to be here. Great to be here. It's good to have you guys on. Like we've had Mick on actually quite a bit on our Global News Watch to talk about what's going on in the military and global issues around the world. But you guys have worked on a paper, a white paper together, which is a 2002-2003 irregular warfare in northern Iraq. It's a case. You guys have done those three partners who or three of you who put this together between the two of you and Uncle Andy. And Uncle Andy is not here to talk about this white paper that was just released by the CIA and Army because he is still a covert employee of the CIA. Is that correct? Yes, that's correct. So it was uh, Tired Lieutenant General Ken Tovo, Army Special Forces, myself, and Uncle Andy that wrote this paper. That uh, took nine months to get cleared, but uh, now it's out on the street. So everybody should read it. It's just crazy. Like, and I love having you on, Mick, but oh my God, I think I always stumble through every podcast we're airing with the titles, but like, it's amazing. I read the paper. Marjorie and I both went through it. It was a lot going on, but they released two papers, if I'm not mistaken, two versions. One's classified and then one was redacted all the information, which is what you guys are talking about now publicly. Is that correct? Yes. So there's a, a classified version that has been submitted to the appropriate journal that would go to the people that are authorized to read that. And then there's one version that's published by the Middle East Institute and is available online and it's unclassified. Was there a lot? I mean, I know I, the CIA and government had to approve all of these things when they come down. And I know it takes a long time to write these was there a lot that was retracted out of this version? Because I know there's a classified version, but did a lot come out of this one so they could at least give the public as much information of why we were over there? Or is this just kind of a watered down version for the public, for safety purposes and whatnot? I'd say that um, the essence of the story is captured in the unclassified version. And that for the, uh, you know, for the general reading public, you're not missing an awful lot from the classified version. There are some things of uh, tradecraft and tactics and, and, and some names that, uh, that were eliminated from the unclassified version in the interest of security. But in the end, the, the lessons learned, which are really what, why we wrote the paper, is really to inform future activities. It's not watered down. It's uh, pretty much as it's written. Yeah. In your paper, you talk a lot about the Iraq war and how we had two distinct phases, one conventional, and then you talk a lot about irregular insurgent warfare. Can you kind of define for the audience what that irregular warfare consisted of? Yeah. So, I mean, just so, you know, because we have a very varied audience with you all, you have a very expanded reach, which is really cool. So when it comes to irregular warfare, if you look at regular warfare, it's more like when you think of World War II and, you know, the U.S. Army taking, hitting the beach in Normandy and taking on 
by the Germans or the Marine Corps with the island hopping campaign. It's, it's uniformed military doing battle, essentially. Irregular warfare is kind of a collection of everything else. So it's, it is counterterrorism, it is counterinsurgency, it's foreign internal defense. It's all these things that are short of, you know, all out armed conflict, but it's essentially what we do the most of. And it's actually probably the most common form of warfare throughout the history. So there's many groups that specialize in that. Army Green Berets are certainly one of them, and the CIA is another. And one of the reasons why we wrote this paper is because when we do things together, we tend to have greater effect. You guys came about this white paper because you guys were looking to combine special services and looking to partner with other military services over in northern Iraq. Is that correct? Yeah, essentially the way the uh, kind of things developed in northern Iraq was, uh, you know, we were getting ready to invade. The initial plan was for a conventional invasion from both the south out of Kuwait and uh, and some aspect of conventional force coming through Turkey, through northern Iraq. And that was important because two-thirds of the Iraqi army was up north. And so it felt essential in the overall plan to deal with them by some means. And there was always a, a special forces and a regular component to this. But in the uh, in the final event, the conventional force was not allowed into Turkey, and it was not allowed to invade from the north. And so essentially, the northern campaign became purely an effort uh, for a large part. There was some conventional force eventually brought in, but it was largely a, a cooperation between CIA paramilitary officers who were on the ground already, who had some augmentation from the, the special operations community. And then the bulk of the force was provided by Army Special Forces mostly out of the 10 Special Forces group, of which I was a member. Can you talk about when you go into these like rogue states and areas like this, and you're trying to recruit people to actually help with the regular warfare, what are some of the things that you do to really get people on board? Uh, so one thing, in, and one thing we try to highlight in the paper is the importance of consistent partners when it comes to regular warfare. And trust is the key element of that. So the Kurdish element in northern Iraq, which consisted of the KDP and the PUK, which were political parties, they had been at war with each other, quite frankly, until right before this. But one of the strong relationship points is Ken's group, 10 Special Forces group, had served there in the past and had developed a very strong relationship with them. And so did the agency, according to media, <laughs> apparently also had a good relationship with them. But this carried through, and this carried through to our efforts. And as Ken said, we started off hoping to get, you know, an entire American infantry division there, and that didn't happen. And we had to rely on this militia and unconventional warfare to become the Northern Front, both to deal with a significant terrorist issue in uh, al-Islam, and to also take and keep Saddam's Republican Guard Division pinned up in the North to not confront our efforts coming from the South with conventional U.S. forces. So this partner became, it was always important, but as the political circumstances wouldn't allow us to get the 4th Infantry Division in, they became absolutely critical. And then later, they actually became the key element that helped us with other counterterrorism efforts, in particular, the one that happened in Syria against ISIS. Now, you guys needed a lot of the inside teams to help you guys track down Saddam and other initiatives. Did you guys had any particular resistance from any of the other partners, or was it pretty easy to get them to follow your lead on this? 
You know, the other thing I'd add to, to the question you just asked, Mick, and it follows on into this one is you can't make a partner when there are not at least some alignment of objectives. And so part of creating this partnership is really demonstrating to your hoped for partner that your interests are aligned with American interests. And in, in this case, that was fairly easy to do with one of the parties, the PUK. They were kind of on board from the beginning. But the other party, the KDP, that was in the western half of northern Iraq, was a little bit less convinced. And there was a lot of negotiation, a lot of it happened at the political level. And a lot of it was done through confidence building and trust measures early on in the process. And a diplomatic effort to bargain back and forth and convince them that more of their interests were aligned with taking part than they were in uh, in standing on the sidelines. Now, Gub, a quick question. I know we spoke with Mick briefly in the past. You talked about near-peer competitors. Can you explain what that is and how that played in to this white paper and the experience over there? Yeah. So if you look at the national security strategy, the current one, we prioritize China and Russia, which we deem near-peer competitors, meaning militarily, they're close to us in capability. I don't think they you know, match us, but they're certainly out of the countries that are out there, the ones that are close. Then we have rogue state actors, which are like North Korea and Iran, and then counterterrorists. And another part of this paper that we really kind of highlight is we use a regular warfare for two things in this. We did it's called Operation uh, Viking Hammer, which was against this group called Ansar al-Islam, which was al-Qaeda remnants that came out of Afghanistan after we invented that, invaded there. That was pretty substantial. And we and it was just a handful of Americans and a lot of Kurds, Peshmerga. We handled that problem. And then we turned them to be effective against what at the time was a rogue state, right? So Saddam Hussein would have fallen in the category of a rogue state. So we're trying to show in the paper that irregular warfare isn't just for counterterrorism. It can be used to compete against, obviously, rogue state actors, but also the near-peer competitors of Russia and China. Russia, in particular, uses irregular warfare as one of their primary tools to meet their national objectives. We can, too, and that's the battlefield they choose to be on. We can be just as effective in, in dominating that space as we are in the conventional space. The other aspect is of this question is the fact that if you look historically throughout periods of peer competition, strategic competition between significant powers, great powers do not like to fight each other conventionally. And so that is the exception because great power war generally results in not a lot of winners. I mean, if you look at World War I and World War II, Great Britain won both of those conflicts. They were on the winning side in both. And yet the result of it was a a loss of their empire, and a greatly reduced stature for them geopolitically because they essentially bankrupted themselves in two major great power wars. Great powers do not want to fight a conventional conflict. However, they still want to achieve their aims. And so history demonstrates time and again that great powers will use irregular warfare means to achieve their objectives. And so that, that means things like operating through proxies. We've watched that with the Russians in the Ukraine and how they how they retook Crimea. Their invasion of Georgia is has some of those aspects, but but really Crimea and uh, the Ukraine are probably the, the best examples in contemporary history of the use of proxies and irregular warfare means to achieve objectives at a level of violence short of great power war. They did not want to fight NATO. They don't want to fight America head to head because they don't think they can sustain a conflict but they still want to achieve their objectives. And so we can expect China will, will do the same kind of thing, use a regular warfare means to achieve their aims and stay below this threshold of conventional conflict. 
And this is one of the things, I mean, using irregular warfare, if I'm not mistaken on this, is so you guys can commit to and bring on other international partners with the same goals, correct? You guys are looking at partnerships with other international um, partners. Is the whole idea of this with the irregular warfare is you want to have other international partners and be aligned with other leadership with the same common goal, regardless of your differences in the beginning. That's the whole point of what you guys did with all these other international partners and the um, white paper, correct? Yeah, I, I, yeah. I think this is a, this, our paper highlights the fact that we were able to achieve results at relatively little expenditure of US, U.S. resources and U.S. manpower for sure, and yet achieve very significant objectives. And in, in essence, that's a lot of the aspect of irregular warfare approaches is to seek asymmetries, to seek indigenous partners to help us achieve our goals in ways that are, in many ways, more politically acceptable than a large concentration of U.S. troops, money, manpower. Now, one of the phrases that in the paper that I really loved was you talk about leadership without ownership or ego and the unity of command. Kind of how do you manage many different parties? Maybe they're all common goal, but then they also have, you know, their own political agenda. Yeah. uh, Yeah. It doesn't matter how common your goals are. If you're different entities, you generally have some, some areas of disagreement. And, and so the art of this is to, first of all, as, as Mick talked about before, you, you have to figure out how to establish a relationship based on trust because it's easy to lead and, and operate together when you're in agreement. It becomes more difficult when the objectives start to diverge. You know, at one point in this campaign, we didn't talk about it much in this paper, but uh, there was an Iranian paramilitary group that Saddam had supported that was in in our battalion area, our battalion sector. And the Kurds wanted to destroy them. They had a long history of fighting against this group. And in the end, we used an authority we had been given by CENTCOM to essentially strike a ceasefire and demob them, demobilize them. But essentially not use force against them after, although we had started out with a little bit. but uh, And the Kurds were upset about that, particularly because we demobilized them in a way that kind of kept them between the Kurds and Baghdad, where they wanted to get to. And we did that specifically to keep the Kurds out of Baghdad. And so we had a point there where our objectives had had somewhat diverged. The Kurds wanted to get Pesh all the way to the outskirts of Baghdad. And the U.S. did not want the Kurds in Baghdad to complicate that political situation. And bottom line is I had to go to my main counterpart, Jalal Talabani, and explain why I had done it. And it is what it is. And, you know, in the interest of the long-term partnership with the Kurds, they were going to have to kind of give on this one. And they did. Just to piggyback on that, that answer, one of the things we did highlight in the paper was the need for young leaders in both the military, U.S. military and the CIA and other, to be able to work in this environment, right? So the key element in most, certainly in the U.S. military, which I was in, is the unity of command. I mean, people work for you, you give them orders and they carry it out. In this interagency environment, it doesn't work that way because we don't, we don't work for each other. So having that kind of emotional intelligence and the ability to work in that space was critical for this. And I saw great examples and quite frankly, in, in Ken and Uncle Andy. It's kind of one of the models I used in my career, but it's going to be that way going forward. This is, you have to be able to deal in that kind of environment and be able to work together. You know, we, we quote, you know, President Truman, you know, that's amazing what you can accomplish if nobody cares about credit. And that's really what we're trying to highlight in this 
it's not about ego. It's about the mission and working together. And then when you add in other factors like the Kurdish issue and their and their own agenda, I mean, it deviated a bit from ours, but also the political sensitivities of having, you know, Kurds liberate Baghdad. I mean, those are all things that we had to deal with as a team, so to speak, but it's also not unique to this event. It's going to happen again and again in the future. And we need leaders that can not only function, but strive in that environment. Was this the first time the CIA and special forces worked together? No, actually, there's a very long history of the CIA and U.S. Army special forces working together that goes back into uh, kind of the Vietnam and even pre-Vietnam era. But, but we forget these relationships over time. And that's one of the things we're really emphasizing here is that we don't need to recreate these every time we have a conflict or an emergency. We should maintain these relationships over time because as we look forward to this you know, this competition phase with China, Russia, et cetera, we need to get out of the mindset of we're at peace or war, that there's this whole space that is kind of continual competition, continual irregular warfare activities. And so the partnerships need to be maintained, not rebuilt each each generation having to learn what the previous generation of CIA and, and Army Special Forces has, has learned. The natural relationship that has really proven to be effective. This is just one example. I didn't want to highlight that. There's examples, you know, at the beginning part of Afghanistan, the relationship that was between the Green Berets and the CIA that really was effective in taking uh, the Northern Alliance and, and removing the Taliban from power. Sadly, we're in a situation where that's well changed. But this, like Ken said, this is a relationship that has had many successes and it's probably going to have many more. But we don't need to reinvent the wheel every time we have a conflict. We need to work together, train together, and do all that before the actual next conflict that requires us to do so. Yeah, I think it may just be because, you know, like this is probably the first white paper that we've seen on this side, you know, public from you guys. So this is going to probably be a dumb question for you, Mick, but is this the first paper you have done with Ken on the partnership that has actually been public or and are there more to come? Because this was from 2002 and three. I know it takes a long time to write white papers and it takes time for approvals. I'm going to make an assumption that you guys, given the successes of this, and like you said, there's many more times down the road, we're going to see more successes of inner partner relations and stuff like this. Is this was more of a public approach to set presidents to show here's why it works. Here's where we are moving forward. Unity as a team working together. Or was this really because you guys needed to get out into the public what happened and why you guys partnered up in 2002 and 2003? Yeah, I'd, I'd offer that the reason we wrote the paper now is really more about the future than the past, right? We, we, we chose this example because it was one that we had all participated in and, and kind of knew inside and out. But really, we were looking towards the future and saying, hey, we've got to make sure that going forward that we spend as much time as, a, as an agency, as, as the military, focused on these irregular warfare skills as we do on the conventional warfare skills. I mean, if you track where DOD is going, there's a lot of effort right now on hypersonic weapons and the next gen of this and the next generation of, of you know, ship and all this other thing that we, we tend to focus on the conventional inside the DOD particularly. And we wrote this paper to remind people that irregular warfare will still matter even when we're gone from Afghanistan, even when we finally close out Iraq and Syria, that the, the nature of great power competition and conflict 
is that irregular warfare will continue to matter and we need to maintain those skills and we need to maintain the relationships that made us effective as an interagency team. Yeah, and just to, to emphasize that point, right? So Russia, they call it the Gerasimov doctrine, which I think is erroneously labeled, but it does show that the, the Russians have embraced irregular warfare, their form of it, as their primary means to meet their national objectives. And if that's what they choose to do, then we need to dominate them. Just like we have conventional overmatch, we need to have unconventional overmatch. I think that uh, Ken said that in the past in one of our interviews. And I really believe that's, that is where we need to head because, you know, as uh, national security professionals, we need to seek to be dominant in both areas. In the paper, you also discuss threats like North Korea, which is obviously big issues with them, obtaining nuclear weapons, et cetera. How have you utilized the strategies you discussed in this paper in North Korea? I mean, one, we can't talk specifically about current (laughs) operations. It took us us nine months to get this this out the door. Uh, And we certainly wouldn't want to disclose anything that would compromise anything we were doing. But I mean, North Korea is a different different kind of animal. I mean, they have a they have a nuclear weapon capability, we believe now. So it does change the, the space a bit, but they do quite a bit in this arena. And to be good at a regular warfare isn't just being able to do it. It's also to counter the efforts by your adversary. So I, without disclosing anything that we're doing now in Korea, North Korea rather, I would say that it is very applicable to the things they want to do and countering that. And in obviously the other rogue state actor we've already labeled Iran, this is also just like with Russia, this is where they feel like they can compete. It gives them deniability. You know, we call it proxy warfare, where you, where you get another element to do what you don't want to have to claim that you did because of retaliation purposes. This is all things that are happening and will continue to happen around the world. That we need to be able to meet them in that space and be successful. I have a question for you, Austin, in the paper, guys. You mentioned that the U.S. needs to evolve and adapt your regular warfare capabilities to match these other countries. Have you guys felt that you've evolved since 2002 and three, or since you wrote the paper? Or do you guys feel you still have a ways to go to catch up to where they are? I wouldn't talk about catching up so much as just a continual evolution of capabilities that recognizes that the the operating environment changes, right? And it's different situation to situation. I think in general, you you look at things that are happening in the information domain right now. We probably, as a as an irregular warfare community in the military, need to up our game a little bit in in information operations at the operational and strategic level. We are very good at, at what I would call tactical information or psychological operations. But when you look at some of the things that our adversaries are trying to do at the strategic level, directly influence U.S. population, for example, directly influence U.S. opinion on things. They are leveraging techniques and technologies that my perception is, is that we are not taking advantage of, or maybe are not either from an authority's perspective or even a technical perspective, are not comfortable doing the same kind of things in reverse, and that we need to get better at those kind of aspects. Part of a regular warfare is, is simply figuring out ways to leverage populations and to influence populations through means other than direct combat. And the information certainly space is certainly a ripe for, for leverage and influence. I want to talk a minute about 
the future on landscaping and how difficult that looks with technology being more advanced. I know we've mentioned the drones with Mick before in some of our previous podcasts. I mean, there's bioweapons, there's artificial intelligence. How much more difficult do you think it's going to be to use irregular warfare in some of these unprecedented situations down the road? Because it's all about who has the better technology and keeping ahead of that. So it's about who has the better technology, but also about who knows how to use that technology to their advantage, right? So as, as Ken just said, we have really gotten good at you know the kinetic part of irregular warfare, particularly CT. We're not that great at the strategic messaging and communications and impulse. I think we're getting better. We, we're, we're really developing that capability. So there's a core of people who are experts, but it's kind of lagged behind, I think. And that's one of the areas that I think we can improve on and we will improve on. The other areas, and this is related to technology, is the cyber realm, which is becoming more and more critical. And it's more and more critical that the irregular warfare component of the U.S. national security apparatus embraces it and uses it. And that also includes things you just mentioned, artificial intelligence. But technology is one thing. Having the ability to use it in this arena is another. And it's like the application of it is going to be something that, that we have to get good at. And as Ken just said, we, it is evolved. And the, all of those things you mentioned are going to be part of that evolution. Yeah, I, I would just add that I think from an American point of view, you know, the American way of war, if you will, we tend to emphasize technology. But technology is not necessarily dominant in warfare. I think we're watching that play out on our TVs every night right now. We brought the latest and greatest in military technology to Afghanistan for the last 20 years. And the, the uh, victorious side here was armed with AK-47s, small arms, and the will to win. And that, in the history of warfare, generally succeeds over technology. Very true. Okay, since we brought the um, Afghanistan up, obviously there's a lot of this playing out in the media where, you know, the media has very definite opinions about what has happened. Now, everybody's an expert of this, but you two are actually experts on this subject. So how do you feel like everything that you've learned and talked about in this paper can now be applicable to Afghanistan, knowing that it was just such a short period of time? Like kind of, if you were to break it down, what do you think we could have done differently? So I can start with that. I mean, that's, that, that might take another 14 podcast, to be honest. But if you look at the model we have, we found a competent partner force in the Kurds, in the Peshmerga. We then took our enabling capabilities, combat advisors uh, from both the Green Berets and the agency, our air support, our intelligence support, and we were pretty effective. Not just in the example that Ken and I write about, but in the initial stages of Afghanistan and quite frankly, during the CT fight in Afghanistan of 20 years. What I personally have seen that is less effective is trying to create a military that duplicates ours, that is modeled off of ours. And then when we are no longer there, they don't have a great track record. Quite frankly, when we left Iraq in 2011, and then the Iraqi forces had significant issues fighting total militia, ragtag militia and ISIS, I think we had to get an international coalition to go back and, and basically defeat their so-called caliphate. And now, I hope it doesn't happen again, but it kind of looks like it already did and that the Taliban's already controlling the, the country and there's and there's terrorist elements that are going to be allowed to exist there. So if I was to take uh, something from the paper we wrote and talk about lessons learned from Afghanistan, I would say that maintaining a partner force in which could exist in the absence of us, it has confidence in their ability to fight, 
without all of the advantages that we gave them in the air would be one of it. It's easier said than done. But yeah, that would be my input on that. Yeah, I, I think one of the, uh, the challenges of warfare in general, certainly irregular warfare for sure, is it's much easier to disrupt and tear down than it is to build stability and long-term peace. You know, in, in this case study, we were essentially trying to destroy a terrorist organization, trying to disrupt Iraqi military movements. In the end, the overall invasion was designed to overthrow Saddam, just as we had overthrown the Taliban in, in Afghanistan. That's, a, if you will, easier. I hate to say, to say that word in any connection to warfare, but it's an easier aspect than this idea of creating long-term stability. And long-term stability requires building institutions, and uh, in some cases, where there were none previously. When you look at Afghanistan, it's a nation that has really very little history in government institution, in strong bureaucracy, and it had a population that was frankly largely illiterate as a result of no education for 20 years. That's a challenge to rebuild society from that point, particularly if you're not willing to stay for the long term. And the long term in Afghanistan was probably going to be four years or so. Look how long we have stayed in Germany and South Korea. Are you guys more concerned down the road and what you've been doing with you guys, like you said, Ken, the guns, AK-47s, the tanks, or are you more concerned with how advanced some of these allies are becoming with technology on like Mix mentioned cybersecurity, you know, with AI? I mean, is there one over the other that's more concerned or is it pretty much it's still a messy situation figuring out how to evolve and get past all of this? I think there's clear agreement in the national security establishment today that as concerning as today's events are in Afghanistan and that there is a, an associated risk of further terrorism coming from Afghanistan, all those things agreed to, if you will, uh, that China is the long-term most significant potential threat to the United States. And that's, and that's what we need to be focused on for the long-term. Now, the question is, you know, can a nation like ours juggle more than one ball? And you hope so, right? We ought to be able to prevent further attacks on a nation from terrorists at the same time as, as we figure out how to, how to compete and maintain a stable, peaceful relationship with China. Yeah, just to double down on that. I mean, think about we took a significant terrorist attack in 9-11-2001, and we spent 20 years of our efforts trying to deal with that. So I think the nation has to be able to juggle two balls at the same time because a terrorist attack can significantly challenge our national security objectives. And China right now is moving in Afghanistan. So, you know, the idea that, you know, we have had troops and as Ken just mentioned, Germany, Japan, we also have troops that are still in Kosovo. I mean, most people don't know that, right? So I think it's a worthy investment to keep a residual force in Afghanistan to preserve. I mean, obviously, the president doesn't think that, that, you know, he's the one making that decision. But it's not just about CT, right? So now China moves into that vacuum. They're the only friend that the Taliban has. And there's quite a bit of natural resources that China wants in that country. So... Yes, I, I totally agree with the priority that China is the top. They are the most existential threat to the United States, and I think we should deal with them. But it doesn't mean that's the only thing we can do. And it doesn't mean that they're not going to take advantage of this, this kind of desire to pull out of a lot of areas around the world and leave this vacuum that I think that our adversaries, not just China, but also Russia, are going to attempt to fill. I think the other thing, as, as Mick pointed out, is that these problems aren't in silos, right? They're not stovepipe from each other. And often what may look like a CT effort in a country is also at the same time 
kind of this struggle for influence between us and other great powers, whether it's the Russians or the, the Chinese, right? I mean, some of the work we do in Africa, for example, may be for the immediate purpose, or certainly from the perspective of the host nation, their interest is in getting help with the terrorism threat they have in the country. But it's also about garnering friends and partners on our side, if you will, that don't go the way of uh, lending their their votes with the Chinese. I mean, it's I hate to use the Cold War dynamic, but it has aspects of that bipolar world of the Cold War where we sort of competed for you know, friends and partners on either one of our sides. Often when you look back at a time in your life, and this is what you guys obviously lived for very many years, you wrote down some key takeaways, but I'm kind of wondering what individual lessons did you learn about yourself and about your leadership? From this example, I already mentioned, you know, when I was a junior, I have to be particularly careful about discussing this, but I will say this because it, it's one of the reasons why we first, well, I first wanted to write the paper. I saw a great example of leadership, Ken Tobo, and who will be named Uncle Andy. This was an incredibly difficult situation. They were both still, you know, they were senior, but they were, you know, this is a long time ago, right? And they had to deal with significant political circumstances, plus tactical, plus operational, plus strategic. And and they did so in a way that was, I thought was very effective. So I know he doesn't want me to sit here and brag about him, but I'm going to do it anyway. Here's an example, right? So you guys know I'm at Lobo Institute. Um, it's, it's something I started with a former SEAL, right? So we developed a relationship in a very similar circumstance years later. After that, we stayed connected because we kept showing up in the same places, right? Somalia and all sorts of Afghanistan, all sorts of stuff. So I use that as an example. And it's probably why, you know, my business partner, Eric Olerk, is, is my business partner today and vice versa. It's just you have to be able to deal with this kind of an environment. And it is, I think, one of the more effective tools we have in our toolbox when it comes to national security is the irregular warfare component of it. I agree with everything that Mick said. I think the, the thing I'd add from my own personal experience was that the, the training and education that I had kind of accumulated over the course of my career up to this point have really paid huge dividends. I mean, it, it, for me, it validated the process that we use to train Green Berets from the, the day they volunteer to go through the course, kind of right through their career. We as a unit were ready to do the things we were being asked to do in an incredibly complex environment. And it wasn't just me. I mean, I watched young NCOs and junior officers seamlessly transition from leading Kurds in, in combat, seizing small cities and, and villages, and then the next day they were establishing town councils and, you know, dealing with all the different parties and trying to create little pockets of stability as Saddam's bureaucracy fled and, and, and disappeared. So uh, it, to me, it really validated the process by which we train, but more importantly, how we educated our, our young soldiers, NCOs and officers to, to do the job they were asked to do. I love that you guys did this paper because I always believe it's always partners in numbers when it comes to peer networking, knowledge exchange. So to have international allies and partners and combine special forces, CIA, it just gives you more power and intelligence to grow and lead together on some of these situations. So I, I want to commend you guys for putting the time into this white paper because I know how much went into this and experience you guys have had. And I kind of want to like ask a question a little bit off the cuff. I know we just read and heard, I know Mickey been covering Afghanistan 24-7 the past few weeks, that Biden is not pushing that deadline back. 
And there's a lot of controversy that adamant it's not being pushed back and there's going to be a lot of fallout. But we're seeing in the media, at least from our standpoint in PR, that there's it's been buzzing around the White House truth and the ground truth. I know I brought this up to you before, and we actually talked to a few of our Wall Street Journal reporters this morning, the other day on some other stuff. And the same buzzwords are floating around now, White House truth, ground truth. And, and I know a lot of this is top secret. You can't talk about it. The White House administration can't talk about everything. But it's like to Marjorie's point in the newspapers and the media, Nobody knows where the truth really lies. So how do we know as a public of the masses where to put our support and our efforts when we don't really know where the truth lies between both of these entities? Can you guys kind of talk about, was that kind of a similar situation back when you were in Northern Iraq and how that's probably to where we're at right now? Well, I can start with it. <laughs> can you want to dive into that? That pool. So, I mean, the current situation is obviously it's dynamic, and you have to give some leeway to the fact that the the information isn't completely free flowing. I mean, I am not in Afghanistan, but I would like to commend the Herculean effort that the U.S. military, the State Department, other government agencies are doing to get U.S. citizens out, and obviously the special immigrant visa people out. It was massive, and everything that I heard from people on the ground, it, it is. And these people have served many times in both Iraq and Afghanistan. It's, it is it's nothing like they've ever seen. So I do think we need to start with commending their efforts. You know, I personally disagree with the decision to, to pull forces out, and I thought we probably could have came up with a better way to do it, but we are where we are. So, I mean, I don't, I'm not a partisan person, as you know, Sarah, as I say all the time, and I'm serious about that. I don't, I don't, I'm not either part of this. So I think there's always going to be an element of the White House not exactly knowing what's going on the ground. And that was probably the case when we were in northern Iraq, you know. And then there's, of course, the political realities. Of, they have a certain message they want to get out, okay? And whether it's, you know, who's deliberately telling something that's not accurate, I don't know. But I can say, and because, you know, when we were there, we got, you know, I was junior, but we had very senior people calling what would normally not be the, the point of contact they would use for the for either the U.S. Army the US, or the CIA in talking directly to them. So it is a dynamic situation that we were in. It's a dynamic situation that we're in now in Afghanistan. I wouldn't want to say that anybody's deliberately misleading anything. And I think a lot of it's just, uh, you know, the, the nature of the kind of the ongoing operation. Yeah, I, I would just add that uh, having risen through the ranks, you know, kind of from that lowest tactical level inside the special forces up to, you know, fairly senior position by the time I retired, that the higher you get away from what's happening on the ground, the harder it is to as a, as a leader to understand what's really going on. And it's not from malfeasance or desire at any level. You know, it's not that the people on the ground don't want to share the truth. And it's not that the people at the top don't want to understand the truth. It's just the nature of bureaucracy. It's hard at a more senior level to really understand the ins and outs of a tactical situation, which is what's going on on the ground right now in Afghanistan. And part of the challenge is how do you get enough understanding from the tactical level so that you have good decision making at the senior level? And so... And then, and that's without the lens of politics and all those other things. So your question, I think, was, so how does the American citizen kind of sort through and find truth in all this? That's a great question in today's ultra-politicized, a deluge of information sources. And, and we're asking the American citizen to figure out how do I weed through this and find truth? 
I personally face that challenge every day. And what I do is I, I try and make sure I take information from both sides of the political spectrum. Every time I read something that makes me think, I try and figure out what the bias of the sending organization is. And somewhere in there, I try and interpolate truth between the polar opposites that you get from mainstream and, and cable news and everything else. And, and hopefully find something in there using my own kind of logical tests and my own sense of the world. And I hope that I'm right. Maybe 60% of the time would be good. Do you feel like there are some news sources that are more neutral if people were trying to go and really find out, really get educated? Is there any place that you'd recommend? <laughs> well, you're putting me on the spot because you know I work for ABC. So ABC is an excellent ABC is the number one place to go. <laughs> let me let me let me dig you out of that one, Mick. ABC News. Okay, so so Mick has stood up for his employer. I will tell you that I don't think any of them are without bias of some kind or another, yeah. whether intentional or just as a result of human nature. And so I would tell you, you know, the American citizen needs to read all of it with a critical eye. And if I could change one thing in our education system, it would be to kind of teach a logic course to America so they question the credibility and credulity of some of the statements people make and look for actual evidence. Yeah. So one point, because this is going to loop back into the irregular warfare, I think I think everything Ken saying is absolutely right. And also, there is a significant disinformation element to what the information that the U.S. consumer gets. And that's not by accident, right? So there's plenty of adversaries that deliberately insert disinformation into our social media that then gets spread all over the media. And I'm talking Russian, just to be clear, right? And then it's sent all over the media and it's it, it looks like a it looks like a news source, but it really isn't. They even do like articles that say and it's not. So there is a disinformation that it's using, you know, the technology that we have and the interconnectivity that we have against us, basically. So it just adds one more element to Ken's caution, like be critical, seek other sources, just because it's on, you know, I won't pick on any specific, you know, but just because it's on your social media doesn't mean it's mm-hmm. accurate, right? So, and yeah. I, I would hope more people take the time to do that because it really does. And what, why do they do this? They're trying to pit Americans against each other, right? There's so, so uh, much yeah. crap on social media. I mean, it's all about sensationalism and selling the ratings. I mean, when we look at the ratings from all the media publications and everything being in PR, there's so much sin and spin, as we call it, our industry. And to your and Ken's point, you've got to look at the facts. You've got to be logical. In regards to the regular warfare and the paper in northern Iraq, where is a good place as you wrap up for everybody to go if they want to read the paper or where they get access to this paper and more information on it? Credible information. Uh, let's get them the right sources here. I don't want them to just pick it up on social. And we, and we don't want to post you know, a lot of this stuff on social either. We want them to go directly to the source with you guys. Where can they find this paper? So it's published on the Middle East Institute, which is the oldest think tank in Washington, D.C., actually. So they can find it there. And it's been republished on the Small Wars Journal, I know, and perhaps other places. That's what I know. I don't know if you've seen it in any other place, Ken. No, I 
I think I'd go to the source there in the Middle East Institute. Yeah. Not not a version that the Russians change. I was gonna say I'm sure there's, there's probably give it enough time, there'll be other versions out there. It's gonna be in Chinese, Russian, it's gonna be in every other language around the world, global translations. But if they do, because I actually Googled this on this question as well a while ago. If we Google irregular warfare, there's a lot of articles, like to your point, that you don't know really where the sources are, but it's a case study in CIA and US Army Special Force operations in northern Iraq. 2002-2003, that will pull up one of your sites. It's MIT or MIT or Middle East. MEI, Middle East Institute. Yeah, it does pull up there. So, but there's a lot of other stuff out there. I just decided that the two of you, given your like such tremendous strength and leadership, I mean, I've known Mick for a while, but looking at your resume, your can, it's just outstanding how much leadership and how much you guys have given back to not just the country, the troops, people out there in the field. You guys both make tremendous CEOs. I just got to say that to both of you, given everything we've talked about. And I think we both agree on that. We deal with a lot of CEOs, but you guys are so spot on when it comes to lead by strategy and intelligence, not by ego. So I think there's a lot besides the white paper, just talking with you guys are so much people need to stop really hear what you're saying and follow lead on this. So I do appreciate the time you guys both took today to talk to us on the podcast. Well, thanks. Really enjoyed the opportunity. Thank uh, do, you. Do we, have, do we have any other white papers to look forward to from you guys that you could at least say just yes, no? Or is this really the one that you guys were going to collaborate on? Is that a no comment, comment? Well, no, who knows? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, we'll have, we'll have to see. Uh, Mick will tell you that I'm a reluctant writer. And, and not a very fast one either. This was, It didn't take quite as long to write as it did to get clear, but it wasn't generated in an evening. Wait, what, <laughs> yeah, well, yeah. Why, why did you... Go, I mean, we know we've talked about this, but the very bottom level, why did you decide to do a white paper on what happened almost 20 years ago? I mean, Ken, you, I, given you, I know how busy you guys are, but why this topic and why now? My drive was was really twofold. One, I wanted to, to highlight kind of the actions of some really phenomenal Americans on the ground, the, the young men, primarily men, but there was some women in the task force as well, but the, really took an incredible risk in this operation. We don't go in, into a lot of that in the paper, but it was it was kind of hanging out there. They were a long way from help and support. And so to kind of the honor of their service, but really, you know, as we've talked before, the, the real impetus on this is to make sure that the nation has the right tools for the future. And this this team that we assembled with the CIA and the U.S. Special Forces, I think, is a, a key component of successfully achieving U.S. objectives in competition for the next decades. Yeah, I totally agree. And in fact, I, you know, thinking back at it, it was a lot of guys on the team that wanted us to write this, you know, so they actually generated and came to me and Candace and can you, because, you know, there's, everybody has a perspective and they knew our perspective was going to be one academic, you know, not, not series of war stories, and it was going to really highlight the team aspect of this. And then it was really going to, I think, put it in context of like, well, so what? You know, what? Do, why are you saying that? Because we thought it had, to the national security strategy, this was applicable. And that is what we truly tried to do. And I think that hopefully we did that. But it was, you know, thinking back, and I didn't think until you asked a question, it was a lot of like, a lot of the guys on the team really wanted to see this out there. And they wanted to to talk about the success from the point of view of a team. Great. Guys, thank you so much, Ken Mick, for joining us today. We really appreciate it. Keep us posted. And then Mick, we will look forward to talking to you soon. Ken, we hope that you enjoy your U.S. Army retirement. 
I know there's more greatness coming out of you on White Papers with me to look forward to, but until we talk to you guys again, thank you so much for being on the show. Thank you for joining us for this episode of the Media Mavens podcast. If you don't want to miss an episode or download past episodes, subscribe to the Media Mavens podcast on your favorite podcast provider or on the Evergreen Podcast Network. To learn more about the podcast or our guests, log on to www.mediamavenspodcast.com. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.